Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. Today, we are Professors Robert and Sarah Black, hosts of Pump Up the Minute and Five Minute Arrival. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. And we are here to discuss Minute 94 of The Best Years of Our Lives, which begins, we are in the kitchen of Marie and Fred. One of the notable differences between the novel and the script is that Fred does not reject Marie the first time he sees her after getting back to Boone City in the film. Instead, they make a go of being married, and Fred's burgeoning relationship with Peggy is surprisingly a bigger through line than it is in the book. Surprising in how it plays out because, as Sarah Kozloff points out in her BFI study of the film, the production code's major concerns had to do with the amount of drinking and drunkenness portrayed, and the fear that Fred and Marie's breakup challenged the sanctity of marriage. Also, the FBI report on the film, yes, there was an FBI report on the film if you haven't heard that yet in this show, quotes civic groups that contend that aspects of the film, such as excessive drinking and acceptability of divorce, lower the country's moral tone and charge that communist influence is the driving force behind this moral corruption. And the divorce rates were skyrocketing in 1946. Divorce doubled. There were over 600,000 when there had been 300,000 huh. the year before. Rates of alcoholism were skyrocketing as well. Part of that, I mean, we first cut in with, well, the first dialogue in this minute, rather, is Marie continuing her conversation, saying, talking to your sleep, sleep, honey. Sometimes, sometimes you shout, something's on fire, and you want somebody to get out. You keep saying, Gadowski, Gadowski. So we have Fred, who's been having flashbacks, and what was referred to as shell shock then, which would be referred to, but isn't, or wasn't, rather, labeled PTSD until the early 1980s. In the 1940s, people looked at shell shock as being, quote, a lack of moral fiber. And a lot of the symptoms which Fred was having are nightmares. So sleeping problems, being easily angered, jumpiness, self-destructive behavior. And when Fred responds, Dorsky, oh, there's a friend of mine, a B-17 pilot, he got it over Berlin. It took me a second because that slang's a little old, so I'm like, he got it means he got killed. Yeah. yeah. I would note that relative to a film that would have come like decades later, mm -hmm. we don't get a scene of him like having a nightmare about this and waking up like sweaty in bed. And we have her just asking about it. It makes it much more casual at the same time. It's still a really serious thing. Yeah. And do you think it was just because it's a 1946 yeah. film that they didn't they want did, to They didn't it. want to show that. It's it's a bit too dramatic. And they ultimately left out most of the their flashback kind of stuff. We hear sound things a few times. But they had planned for more and then kind of decided in production to leave that out. But in World War II, 16 million served roughly. About half of those, about 8 million, saw direct combat. One out of eight of those discharged were discharged for combat-related neuroses. Aging World War II veterans are more than four times likely to commit suicide than those in their age group who hadn't served. And one psychiatrist said that most of the veterans that he worked with didn't come in for treatment at all until they were in their 70s and their 80s, and they typically came in either after they were retired hmm. or they had lost their spouse. Huh. In the 1946 John Houston documentary, which the U.S. government prevented from being shown until 1981, depicts how 20% of American battle casualties in World War II were psychiatric in nature. 
the film followed the treatment of men who, quote, tremble who cannot sleep, men whose pains are no less real because they are of a mental origin, end quote. Carol Schultz-Vento is the author of The Hidden Legacy of World War II. Her father was a World War II vet. She says that he, quote, for all his bravado and success, had returned home from the war a shattered and broken man who didn't confront his demons until the near end of his life, and that it required as much courage as anything he faced on the battlefield, end quote. Some of the veterans that she spoke with, like veteran Otis Mackey, was rocking back and forth during her interview with him and spoke about how his best friend was shot through the neck and how he had to duck when another friend's leg came flying toward his head from a landmine. Said, quote, when we got out, you couldn't talk about things like that. You held it all in. I didn't want to take it to my family. If you'd say anything, people wouldn't believe half of what you say anyway, end quote. The Best Years of Our Lives was one of the films that was dealing with it or addressing it. Or I don't know if you said the title in there of Houston's film. It's Let There Be Light. And, yes. Um, Kozloff cites that because John Houston and William Wyler were close associates. She cites Let There Be Light, and uh, which he made in December 1945, and mm -hmm. Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend, which came out in 45, which was, she calls a franker tale about alcoholism than Hollywood censorship had ever before allowed, as two of the films that Wyler was thinking of when he went into doing this one. Yeah, Weiler was trying to get at that same thing that they hadn't let Houston release. And, and had probably seen Houston's film yeah. in entirety. Even though there were some films like this one addressing it, it was basically short-lived. Yeah. Because the economy did end up recovering. Sort of cultural amnesia set in. People were more, started being more concerned about the Cold War and communism and. Well, and they accused movies like this that dealt openly with it as being yeah. communist influence. Exactly. And so this discussion of the horrors of war was, it was retreating from public conversation and everyone was just supposed to get busy with making money and living the American dream and having all the baby boomer kids. And when Marie says next, can't, Can't you get, get those things out of your system? system? No, the vets really couldn't for a very long time. Think of my great-grandfather. He served in World War I, not World War II, and he didn't die in, in World War I, but he died from World War I is how my grandma puts it. He basically came back when she was nine and then died when she was 14. I, I don't know because it's like still people won't or don't want to talk about it exactly. Yeah. But she just says, like, her dad didn't come back right, or, like, he was never right after he, and then ended up dying from war-related injuries. But I don't know how much of it was physical, psychiatric. I assume it was probably a combination yeah. of just... Yeah, this, this movie clearly separates them, because in the novel, it is Homer who has the physical injuries, who is mm -hmm. the one who drinks too much. Yeah. At first, because of a good thing, he can talk a little clearer when he starts to get drunk, but then he just gets drunk. In the movie, most of the drinking is done by Al. I don't know if anyone's noted it in the previous 90-something episodes, but in reality, it was Dana Andrews who plays Fred, who was an actual alcoholic and had a problem. So you have an interesting play of the way alcoholism relates to the men at this time. And... Only, of these three, only, uh, I forget his real name, guy who plays Homer, actually mm -hmm. served in World War II. By the way, as he, this conversation is happening, Fred is still getting, he's getting out silverware, and he says very casually, oh, he was a friend of mine, a B-17 pilot, he got mm -hmm. it over Berlin. 
which the casualness of this doesn't fit with the novel either, where, like, when he thinks about Godorsky, he has flashbacks to it. Godorsky finished over at Vegisac. It's his 22nd op. They burned up all the way, and Derry watched them burn. He saw their B-17 fortress go down while he was stuck in the front of his in the middle of a fight. And we have Marie keeps crossing the room behind Frank's. It's a very small room. I'll probably talk about this more in the next episode, but the sets in this film were very small, deliberately. Unlike older Hollywood sets where they do the ceilings really high to fit all the lights, they wanted this to feel more real. And it also gives it a sort of claustrophobic feel because of it. And as he says, oh, sure, can't you get these things out of your system? He's got a knife, a fork, and a spoon in his hand. He picks up another knife, spoon, and fork, and then picks up two more pieces of silverware. Like, he's not paying attention to what he's doing anymore. And then finally, a couple cloth napkins for the table as well. As Marie says, maybe, maybe that's, that's what's holding, holding you back. back. You, you know, know the war's, war's over. You won't get, get any place to stop, stop thinking about it. About it. Come, Come on, snap, snap out, out of it. And it sounds really awful, but it's it was actually the prevailing opinion of the day, even yeah. in the psychiatric community, that that's what you were supposed to mm-hmm. do. Like, you're not there anymore. Just get over it. Move on. If you dwell on bad things, then <laughs> we'll lead to. I mean, never mind that 70 years later, almost 75 years later, psychiatric opinion is more that you have to confront things and deal with them yeah. so that you can move on. Although there is still some evidence today that for some people directly discussing or specifically discussing a trauma can be harmful and doesn't end up helping them. But the other extreme of that is just don't talk about it, move on, brush. There's (laughs) That obviously doesn't work either. Which is why in the late 40s and the 50s, you get a lot of male melodrama like this one, but you get a lot that have nothing to do with the war directly, but where you're still getting male characters expressing their feelings a little more because... Hollywood itself is sort of getting that out and trying to say something else. And it, it never quite became a thing. If you look it up, it doesn't even come up as its own genre in, on the internet. What, like male, male melodramas or male melodramas? In, in film yeah. class, our teacher talked about male melodrama as if it was a defined hmm. subgenre and it was a common thing. And it was a common thing, but they didn't talk about it hmm. like it was a common thing. When she says snap out of it, he stops what he's doing and faces her. But there's an interesting blocking thing because they're really close to each other in this small space. He's taller than her, but not that much taller than her. Mm. But in this moment, she in this conversation, she keeps leaning on things. And so when he turns around, she's leaning on the counter and is a lot shorter than him. So it makes him look very imposing, even though he's not even like leaning into her or anything. It just in that shot, he looks really big and she looks really small, even though he's not doing anything to make that happen. So it's just like the director's choice. Because Fred's not trying to be imposing yet. Yeah, but that does make sense. Because one of my next notes as they continue their conversation is that he starts treating her like a child. Yeah, well, (laughs) which would have been common, if not common husband behavior at the time, common uh, like representation of husband behavior at the time. Because yeah, the... Okay, okay honey, I'll, I'll do, do that. that. She starts to play with her bracelets, which I come, I'll come back to. She says, I didn't, I didn't tell you, Fred, Fred but I got a little money saved. saved. And he turns around to look at her. She says, dinner's, dinner's on, on me, me tonight. tonight. And she steps over to be in front of him again, and he goes right back to setting the table. So he's he's separating himself from the conversation a little again. As he tells her, well, you better, better keep, keep on saving it, babe. It, it might come in handy sometime. Time. I appreciate the offer, but we're eating at home. And then he comes back across the downstage to get food out of the box that he brought home. That's when Marie says, well, well I'm, I'm hungry. hungry. I'm, I'm going, going out by myself. myself. And she 
it's the timing is interesting because he turns to stop her before she starts to head out the door. And I don't know if this is a mistake or a deliberate choice, but it, it makes his reaction even more like the kind of thing you'd see in a later film about PTSD, where like everything is so sudden. He's, he's not like thinking jumpy. about it. Yeah. yeah. She heads for the door and he's already turning to, to grab her. He grabs her arm and he not only grabs her arm and turns around, he grabs her arm with one of his hands, then grabs it with the other hand to pull her around. So he stops her with one arm and then pulls her around with the other. So he's putting serious force into turning her around. He says, you're not going out. And we get our first cut in this scene as it cuts to a much closer angle on the same shot because we've been on this wide shot of just them, like almost like a play, which Wyla does a lot in this film, just letting us decide what to look at. But now he doesn't. As Fred holds both of her arms, and but now I would point out that she is standing upright and she is almost as tall as him. So at the moment he gets most physical is also the moment she is most like standing up to him in the way they frame it. And she tries to pull away, but can't. And he says, get that, you're going to stay right, right here and, and eat what, what I, I cook and like it. it. Yeah, so he's <laughs> just straight up. I mean, he is being physically abusive with mm -hmm. her. He just is. Yeah. And now he's telling her just straight up what she can do and can't do. And I feel like in this movie, we're set up to dislike Marie. Yes. And we're supposed to empathize with him, which we can do, I think, without disliking Marie or also empathizing with her. I mean, if we were watching this film in 2020, but if we put ourselves in the mind of women in 1946, in 1946 in the United States, women were not allowed to serve in a jury mm. in many states. They weren't allowed to work as bartenders. They were not allowed to serve as permanent regular members of the Army, Navy, Marines, or Air Force. That wasn't until 1948. They weren't allowed to earn equal pay legally, which wasn't until 1963. They did not have equal rights to federal jobs until 1967, have illegal abortion until 73, weren't allowed to be news reporters, practice law, get credit cards until the 1970s. And so, I mean, this is, it's like Maurice sounds harsh, the way she's talking to him to just snap out of it. Yeah. But as a woman married to a man, She's not suited to. Like, we know they're not very good for no. each other. <laughs> she has few options of her own. It's not like, I mean, it's hard enough for women or for anyone, but still, especially women in 2020 to leave a relationship. Yeah. But there's so many more financial options. And as bad as social programs are in the US, there are still more of them now than there were in 1946. Um, and the judgment is different. There would have been much more judgment in, in 1946. So as a woman with few options of her own, it's normal for her to want a tiny measure of control and her tiny measure of control over a situation she feels she has no control of. She doesn't really know who her husband is. He's come home unexpectedly after mm -hmm. she spent three years having her own job, having her own freedom, having her own apartment. And now he's not only telling her what she can and can't do, but he's telling her she can't even make her own money. She can't yeah. go out to dinner. She can't be, she's a very gregarious, outgoing person. And he's yeah. basically <laughs> not allowing well, her to Well, for these have... two, they were never really married either. They were together for 12 days. Right. And so, got married because he was leaving. Yeah. Imagine, and she moved to his hometown to live with his parents. Right. So. so imagine starting your married life after not spending three years with your... And then your husband comes back yeah. from a war where he has PTSD and your whole life is changing. It's like I can empathize with why she'd want him to, quote, be better or snap out of it. Because again, what are her options if he 
doesn't, she doesn't understand, but the psychiatric community didn't understand. Nobody understood really. I mean, a few people understood like John Houston and people who were making documentaries or this film, but most people didn't. Fewer than one third of women were in the workforce at the time and he made her quit her job. So she's fully dependent on him Mm -hmm. at this point. And the money that she has is just a small measure of power, and he's denying her any agency at all. Which, on on the positive side, that she plays with her bracelets when she says the thing about money is like her connecting with something she has bought. Mm -hmm. The movie doesn't think positively of it. Not as bad as the book. The book, as uh, Kozlov points out, is much more misogynist in a way, but deliberately so. Because it's about these three men who were forced to become a certain kind of man to kill and then have to come back and be normal. So they don't connect well with the women in their lives. Yeah. At all. The movie plays that down actually a little bit. It, he, like, he slaps her in the, in the book when mm. she tries to keep him from looking at her closet. Yeah. And then he looks in her closet and sees all the nice stuff she has bought because she asked for extra money from him a few times while he was gone. And he basically finds out that she's been just buying fancy things. And that's the fight she had with his parents. That's why she moved out mm. and got her own place is because the character she is in the story is, I mean, it's easy to frame and some reviewers did. Peggy is the virgin, Marie is the whore, but journalist Stephen Talty and uh, the screenwriter, February 1947, positions them instead as representing parts of Fred, like aspects of Fred, specifically before and after the war. Because before the war, I mean, it wasn't just Marie who got married on a whim. He did as well, because he was a different kind of person then. He worked as a soda jerk. He went off to join the war. He was a young man. He's only 19 at the time in the book. He's a much older guy because the actor they cast, but in the movie. But he's supposed to be young. So Talty says, Marie, the wife, stands for the kind of fellow Fred Derry was prior to his going into the Air Forces. Ignorant, insular, and selfish. Such people have no insight or concern for the problems of the nation or the world. They are concerned only with their own problems, which are summed up in the simple quest for a good time. These were the people who patronized black markets during the war. Marie's more ostentatious clothing in the film, right? In this scene, she's wearing a shiny dress. She's wearing bracelets and jewelry. And showy stuff that cost her money. When when he came in, she was looking at herself in a shiny, fancy mirror that's probably a recent purchase as well. This These are clear indicators by the filmmakers on how she is being painted. She is one of these people who didn't pay attention to the war and the fact that things were um, rationed. Like, there were certain cloths you were not allowed to buy more than a, a certain amount of at a time. That's how zoot suits came about. They were deliberately too much as a rebellion thing. In the novel, Fred looks through her closet and she tries to stop him. He slaps her, which he later tells her to use as claims for divorce. And it says the closet held about a million dresses, seemed to him, and most he'd never seen before. An army bathrobe, wool, the kind you buy in a PX, a set of headphones, navy, said Derry, touching them. Say, who left these? The sailor boy? Some rum unopened on the bottom shelf, among her many shoes. A pair of army shoes, smooth-toed, size 8, too small for me. So she's also got things in there that belong to mm-hmm. other men that come by. And so even though in the book he admits that he's been with other women while he was gone, yeah. it's using a more visual representation of her bad choices than his because we're on his side. Talty continues, though, uh, these kind of people never gave blood to the Red Cross, they bought no war bonds, and did no war work. Yet they considered themselves 100% Americans. On the other hand, Peggy, Al Stevenson's daughter, is knowing, aware of the larger world around her, interested in problems beyond her own, 
She knew what the war was about and participated in it by becoming a nurse's aide in a local hospital. It is she who understands that the conflict in Fred Derry is the conflict between an old way of life in America and a newer, healthier way of life born out of the experience and sacrifice of the people who fought the war. And so it's not necessarily that one woman is good, one woman is bad. It's on a positive note, we could say it's less about them being women and more about them being representations of more people beyond them, including Fred. But on the surface, yeah, it's just Marie's horrible and <laughs> Peggy's great because Peggy wears nice conservative clothing, works as a nurse. Yeah, because women are supposed to be well, it's what caring and be. counseling. Oh, yeah. We get, mul- we get multiple scenes of yeah. men being tucked in by women. <laughs> right. So. And you can't see Marie doing that. No. <laughs> in fact, we never see their bed laying yeah. down. Right. It's a mattress leaning against a wall. So yeah. interesting, though, because just years later... Americanism is very much buying all of those things and having mm-hmm. full closets. It's yep. like well, even in the before the depression, that was a thing. Too, well, yeah, the twenties was big consumerism. Buying stuff. People were finally able to, and by people, I mean a large number, not everyone, obviously, but a much larger number of people were able to afford appliances yeah. and things that were. Well, I, I imagine in forty six, someone watching this film sees Marie in this dress and all this mm-hmm. jewelry, and immediately knows. She didn't sacrifice like the rest of us did. And they're going to dislike her even more than we might. Yeah. Now, finishing out the scene, Marie says, let go of me. He doesn't. And he tells her, when, when we were married, babe, the justice, justice of the peace said something about, about for richer, for poorer, for, for better, better, for worse. For worse. Remember? Well, well this, this is, is the worst. And she actually has a good response to this, I think. <laughs> she says, <laughs> well, well, when do we get going on the better? better. <laughs> and it shows slight self-awareness on his part that he realizes that this is the oh, yeah. So that's good. Even, even his next line, he knows there's something wrong yeah. with him. Fred is the character who's not, he's not good at admitting it, but he knows mm-hmm. something's wrong. He, he says, whenever I get wise to myself, myself I guess, whenever I wake up and realize I'm not an officer, officer and a, a, this minute cuts off, but when he realizes he's not an officer and a gentleman, which I'll talk more about next time. So he, he, he knows that he's stuck in a different place in his head. He just doesn't know what to do about it yet, which is kind of the point of this film is with all three of the men. My final note for this minute, with the closer angle at the end of this minute here, I was able to read more on the calendar on the wall that I was talking about before. And not only is it a Lawson Wood art, but this calendar is specifically from the World Jungle Compound, which was a wild animal farm in Thousand Oaks that had just been renamed in 1946. So this calendar is brand new. It had been renamed from Jungle Land in 46. Previously, it was Goebbels' wild animal farm, and among its residents were Leo, the MGM lion, Mr. Ed, Bimbo, the elephant from Circus Boy, Tamba, the chimpanzee from Tarzan films, and that chimpanzee was also in Bedtime with Bonzo, along with Ronald Reagan. So, my notes went from communism to Ronald Reagan for this minute. <laughs> and that is where we leave Fred, though, not yet realizing that he is no longer an officer and a gentleman. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert E.G. Black. And I've been Professor Sarah Black. We're the hosts of Pump Up the Minute and Five Minute Arrival, looking at Pump Up the Volume four minutes at a time and Arrival five minutes at a time. You can find both those shows on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. And you can hear music commentary and more social political commentary on my podcast Life is a Playlist, and you can follow Life is a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can go to lemmingdrops.com for links to those shows and more. You can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. 
or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listener's Cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Please join me here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, there. Come on, darling.